Hello and welcome to the LARP Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARP, and I'm joined in the studio today by LARP Editor-at-Large, Kate Wolf. Hi, Kate. Hey, Eric. So today we have a conversation that I had with the very legendary Sheree Moraga about her new book, which is a memoir, Native Country of the Heart. And that really focuses on her mother's life as a way of illuminating Moraga's own coming into being as a Chaconix radical feminist and artist and lesbian. So it's kind of the whole thing, but slightly changed such that the focus is on her mother, not necessarily on herself as she tells her story. Had you read a lot of Sri Moraga before that? Yes. And I think that's both as a result of my kind of interest in radical politics, but also in terms of just being very much entrenched in queer studies in the academy, where Sri Moraga, especially the book she co-edited with Gloria Ansaldua, This Bridge Called My Back, has been tremendously influential to kind of contemporary queer politics. Also, ever since it came out in 1983, it's been influential. So, yes, she's very much a kind of luminary figure in the worlds that I love. Mm. So were you nervous to do the interview? Totally nervous. Oh, Uh my God, just like total hero. But she was very kind. We talked a lot about her mom, about her mom's Alzheimer's diagnosis Mm -hmm. and how she kind of dealt with that. And also her own coming into being as a queer person, which meant both like feeling sometimes apart from certain communities, but also still finding those moments of connection. Um, And we kind of end the interview with a somewhat somber reflection, given her years of political activism, as to the kind of moment politically that we're in right now Mm. and how she's navigating that. Yeah, it's like that protest sign of that. There's this one woman, they have like her waiting at a corner 50 years ago and then she's at the same corner Mm, like with her same sign. It's like an internet meme. Like the changing same. But but I mean, God, I yeah, just watching that for that long must be, because I'm I'm already tired of it. (laughs) But I will say that there's lots of uplifting stuff in this conversation as well. So our listeners can look forward to that. So now let's kick it over to Sheree Moraga. Wonderful. We are thrilled to have Sheree Moraga on the show with us today. Moraga clearly needs no introduction for the many millions who have found her work life-affirming, edifying, and challenging. But she is the famed writer and activist whose influence has shaped much of our contemporary discourse about gender, race, sexuality, feminism, immigration, and indigeneity. Many will no doubt recognize her as co-founder of the Kitchen Table Women of Color Press and as the co-editor of This Bridge Called My Back, writings by radical women of color. Moraga is a recipient of a National Endowment for the Arts Award and the Rockefeller Fellowship for Literature, and she is currently a professor of English at UC Santa Barbara. She joins us today to talk about her latest book, Native Country of the Heart, a memoir of Moraga's life anchored by the difficult and beautiful relationship she had with her mother, Elvira Moraga, as well as an expansive cast of family, friends, and lovers. Cherie Moraga, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Can you first tell us a little bit about why you started writing a memoir, kind of where this project came from? Well, I started kind of like the way I, you know, I've written another memoir sometime earlier around the birth of my son in his early years, and they kind of were generated out of the same thing. I mean, that in the sense that his entry into the world was, you know, really was dealing with, he was very premature, and so I had... I was forced to sort of write in a way in keeping journals around what was happening about his own early months that were so much about a struggle 
to live, and he's lived well, and he's fine now. But it really feels the same to me that when my mother began to lose her memory, I started, again, to just keep journal entries and to just just keep noting for myself what I was feeling, observing her, trying to kind of... I write as a way to sort of make sense of things. And so, mm. you know, when I was beginning, you know, with my sister to see that she was losing her memory, it was very traumatic, it was very worrisome, it, you know, it really was scary how fast things were sort of moving. And that's really what, what first generated it, just trying to kind of have a record of my reflections and my observations and, you know, my sentiment, and without a plan necessarily about what all that means. I never, in the act of writing, I, I try not to have a plan, <laughs> not for something like this. So it could have just stayed there, you know, but it grew to be something much, much bigger. Actually, as you talk about that, I'm wondering, I know that much of your life as a writer and a thinker and an activist has been done in public. I wonder, was there ever a moment where you felt like this was perhaps too personal to be public, or did you struggle with that part of it? Well, I always struggle. Everything I've ever written, I always struggle about what is private and what is public. And I think that ultimately I determined that something is public, should be public, when I feel like its meaning is not specific just to me. Mm. where I feel like in the specificity of describing something, there's actually a much larger message that will have, you know, will have meaning for other people. And that usually, I mean, there's lots I don't, you know, like this book it took me many, many years to complete, and there's many things that are not included there. And, you know, I made those very strategic choices. But I think, you know, ultimately it really is that I felt like, like the intimacy of my mother's, relationship, the loss of her memory, actually brought about also larger questions about cultural amnesia, things that I'm concerned about as a Mexican-American in the United States, as a Chicana. So all along, all of my essays that on one level have always kind of straddled that line, that feminist line that the personal is political, but also the political is highly personal. Mm. And so that's a struggle. It's always, you know, very fine, finely tuned decision-making process about what to include and why. I feel like it always has to have a really, really sound why that something's not there for, you know, something that's just gratuitous or anything. You know, it's an ongoing self-examination as well. I wanted to start, there's a moment in the introduction that I was really struck by, and that's when you say, I had only one romance, the love of an intractable Elvira, and this is what would shape my lesbianism, and this is what would mark my road as a Mexican, and this is what would require me to remember before and beyond my mother. I am a woman who knew myself as daughter and son at once, a protector and provider of women and children. I have learned to confront the police and rapists and silent enemies from within and have lived to tell of it. Can you talk about, I mean, this was striking, it, as readers will become familiar with. You actually unpack this throughout the entire memoir. But can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about the ways that your mother shaped you and ways that seem from the quote kind of unexpected and also what you mean by being both daughter and son at once? I mean, I think you're right. I think that the journey of the book does just that. I mean, it's sort of, as you put it, unpacks all of those statements. You know, that's in the prologue to the book. And, you know, I think that everything... I could just kind of break that when the first part I said, you know, the in, intractable Elvida, like, you know, that one's relation, my mother's, my initial relationship with my mother from the time that I was very, very young, 
I felt like that there was a very intuitive relationship between us that as even as a really young child that that I could read messages from her. I felt like I could read what she was feeling, like she sort of cultivated this awareness in me that was much more mature than my age, I think, you know, not that I got it, I understood everything. So there was a way in which, and I also, you know, a sense of her her own desires, a sense of her own wishes in her own life. I mean, all of these, you know, places that were not fulfilled, the places that brought her joy, all of that. Mm. I mean, I think children do that a lot. I mean, some of it's survival, like you study your parents so you know how to move in the world, you know. And I think part of it was that. Part of it was really trying to figure out how to make sure she was happy when she was quick to anger, trying to kind of maneuver that world. But I think what it also does is it also, for me, that internal life, that way of having to look at another human being with, without judgment, with complexity, is also what makes a writer, you know? So I feel yeah. like in that way, and I said that's what made me a writer, and I said it makes me a writer because a writer, hopefully we're not writing these, you know, cardboard characters, but in fact we've developed some kind of insight or compassion to write more complex characterization. The other part, what I said, and that would lead me to my Mexicanism. I say that as a, my father's an Anglo man. You know, all my family were Mexicanos. And so it was her values that were coming from her Mexicanism that shaped who I was. And so all of this would just keep continuing this way and that I can always kind of trace it back on a certain level to those origins that would then move me through life. And then when it, the part where you're talking about where I say I was both son and daughter, that's because in our family, in our nuclear family, not our larger extended family, which the book also really talks about our family within that much larger context, which was, I mean, I was really blessed that we had this really beautiful extended family. In the context of my, of our nuclear family, there was just ways in which my father and brother weren't present. Right. And so we had to be. My sister and I, I say we as my sister, and I had to be there for my mom. There was a certain, for me, you know, I think because as a child, and the book also talks about, you know, my relationship to my queerness. And so as a, you know, this little tomboy who then grew up to be a lesbian, you know, it's like there was a way in which that's what I mean by son and daughter at once, because the daughter learns this compassion, the son is learns, you know, like my message around men was that they were supposed to, yeah, they were supposed to protect you. Now, whether that's actually now we'll call works that out in real life, exactly. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's a whole other story, <laughs> right? So I felt like I got those messages as a little girl too about what a good, you know, what a good son would be. And it's not necessarily mm. I thought of myself as a son, but that was the role in many ways that I performed in the family in terms of, you know, my mother's needs. And so, you know, I use that language also for the sense about of coming from a family, too, that really, really defined gender roles very strongly. The book also does a real critique of, I believe, a complex critique of the ways in which mothers pass on to their daughters. We don't need men to pass on patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So I come from a family that was very, very fixed in what gender roles meant. So I thought in those terms, you know, even after I came out, I did think about, well, you know, I know I'm not a I'm lesbian, you know, that's not right. what, that's not how right. I am. So those things just kind of evolve, I think, in your consciousness, you know, as you grow older. One of the things that did strike me also is that as much as everything that you're talking about in terms of the defined gender roles and kind of policing certain types of boundaries, and this is mm-hmm. also 
not only in kind of secular context, but there's also a religious context that kind of courses through always yeah. unevenly there. I was also quite struck by the matter of factness with which your mother accepted your coming out to her as a lesbian. Now, I don't want to say that it's like she was happy about it. I don't mean it in that way, right? She has this kind of wonderful rejoinder that it's like, but how could you ever be satisfied by a woman, which you point to? But then she's kind of silent. And when faced with the prospect of accepting you or losing you, always chooses acceptance. Of course. Can you talk about like, that moment, because it sounds even as I read it on the page, and this is from yourself writing as a much older person, but returning back to that moment, I can feel the kind of terror, the feeling that the world will be split in two in this moment. Right. And then your mom yeah. refuses that split. So I'm just wondering if you can talk to us a little about what that meant for you in that moment. Well, I mean, I think that it was absolutely not matter of fact. It was, I mean, it was I guess that's fact. true. There's no but speech. Was, but yeah. I mean, I know what you mean. It's just that is, it was absolutely a matter of fact, mm. which is you're my daughter and there's nothing you could do that you wouldn't be my daughter, you know? So there's a way in which, and you're absolutely right, the way, you know, that that was probably in terms of the early part of the book, it's sort of like the memoir is a memoir of relationships. So I speak, the book focuses on those early years because that's when I was mostly, I was being formed in relationship to being raised by my mother. Mm-hmm. And then it actually goes to her later years in which that were once again rejoined in terms of her, I mean, I was, you know, had a relationship with her all along, but I'm seeing the intimacy and the questions that come up about the nature of that relationship recur also at the end of her life. But that point, I mean, that's what ends the first section of the book is coming out to her. And it was her who made me do it. I mean, any mother... That's right, because she needles you at being yeah. like, you have some kind of secret. I know what it is. Well, she I said, don't. you're leaving with a secret. You're leaving right. with a secret. And I thought that was the most beautiful moment to me of courage that my mother showed that you don't say that unless you're ready to hear the answer. I was the chicken. I was the one that was going <laughs> to split, you know, because I thought I would never be able to... And she was going to lose me, and she knew it. And she was right, because I thought... It would be an unaccept- absolutely unacceptable, you know, in the context of my upbringing. And, and I think those are the things, like sometimes, you know, people will ask me, how have you managed to write, you know, like to be honest about your life? And, you know, in terms of looking at questions of courage and how do you have courage? And all that, like, <laughs> it's like, that was a moment, you know, it's like, yeah. I feel like if you're willing to risk every of my mother's values and everything, everything was that question. And she came through. And I think that that, on a fundamental level, that that, that shapes you. There, what else, you know? If the worst thing could happen and someone comes through for you, then everything else is, is not that bad, is not that same level of risk. As you're speaking about it in those ways, I'm also kind of interested in how your mother informs in ways that are also perhaps unpredictable but make sense when you read the story, your fearlessness. I mean, there's the kind of mantra, I guess, or the phrase that you write at one moment in the book, I think either in section two, it might be in section one, where you say that the phrase you remember her saying a lot as a child is no te dejes, don't be Mm -hmm. abused, like don't let yourself be used or or taken by other people. And I I mean, on the one hand, I would love to hear about how that type of that mantra kind of gets taken up in your own activism, but also in your courage to kind of be yourself, to not let someone step all over you. 
that's kind of tricky, you know, because I think that also there's there's also a relationship to shame in that, in terms of when you're talking, like if I'm saying from a Mexican perspective, and in terms of women, that we also very much, I mean, partly the thing, no te dejas, and like don't just throw yourself away. There's also the other part of it, too, is that don't do anything to shame yourself. It's a thick thing. It's not an easy thing. It's also very thick. But I can tell you, as it says in the book, I mean, there were times, you know, in my life that, I would find myself in certain situations and I'd think this is exactly what she was talking about. Get up and get out. You know, just get up and get out. You have no reason to be there. And that is a really saving grace. You know, I mean, that is really like, like mine, you know, to have that fiber in you, you know, sometimes in my teaching practice, it's like when I talk to my young students, I, you know, I have a lot of Latino students and I see those same questions arise from them and having to say no, you know, like, no te dejes, you know, don't, you have a right to be here. You have a right, and you know, I think as a feminist, like you, you translate that and the politicization of that idea is, is something I think distinct from what Elvida had in mind. But it translates to that. It translates to you have rights. You have rights. You should not be abused. You should not be exploited. And so as a woman of color, as a queer person, all of those things, that means in all those areas, no te dejes. And and I don't think that was the politicization she had in mind, but I think that that is really sort of the material exhibition of that idea in the world, in a concrete action. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Cherie Moraga, author of Native Country of the Heart. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. Jacob Tobiah in the studio with us today. Jacob is the author, most recently, of Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. And Jacob is here to give us a book recommendation. Jacob, what book are you going to recommend? I'm going to recommend a book that was just recommended to me when I did a book talk in Boston at Brookline Booksmith because they have a policy where whenever an author does a book event, they give you a free book. Like you oh, get to so pick nice. any book in the store. I was like, this is like the cutest little thing. That is very But anyway, cute. so I was recommended and I will now recommend to you, Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl by Andrea Lawler. Okay. It's a novel about a gender and shape-shifting person named Paul who can transition on the spot, is profoundly pansexual, and it is like some of the most transformative and liberatory smut I've ever read. Like, it's basically, it's like, I read it a bunch on a plane recently, and just think before you read it on a plane because it's so hot. (laughs) Wait, will you, so will you tell us what Paul... What's Paul's story or what what are the circumstances right. surrounding this main character? Well, I haven't finished it yet. Okay. But basically what I understand so far, because I'm only like, I would say I'm like uh, 60 pages in, mm-hmm. um, which is probably not far enough into a book to recommend it, but they were, they were oh, no. really good I think 60 you can, pages. You can recommend from a page, I think, sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And like, and so Paul's just is like, it's just fucking everybody. Okay. You know? And it's just, it's just a recounting He's of, not... I see. He's fucking everybody. He's yeah. not fucking everybody. Right. No, he's fucking everybody. Like he's having sex with so many people and he's constantly hooking up. And there's this really interesting part that I read the other day that was like where 
he was talking about, and like you could use they, she, whatever, because Paul t- does like is a, is a million different people, right? Like Paul just has a vagina like two seconds later, you know? Mm-hmm. Paul would just be like, ooh, I'm now I'm going to have like, it's it's so hot. But <laughs> there's this part where Paul was like, yeah, I really work. I play this game with myself. Cause, like I want to be attracted to everybody. So I'm playing this game with myself where anytime I'm in a room, I have to pick the person I'm going to fantasize about and I have to find a way to fantasize about them. Whether that means fetishizing sort of one part of who they are, like being like, ooh, those hands, those hands are really nice. And then just imagining all the things those hands can do. Or if it's about like, you know, just looking at that one butt and being like, yeah, that's the butt I'm going to like destroy, you know? (laughs) Like it's just, I mean, I can't even get into all the descriptions on air because, oh my God, like they're so, but it's just, I was was like sweating and I was also like, (laughs) deeply turned on but turned on in a way that was exciting for me because most of the time I feel like because of how my sexuality was programmed by like Disney Channel executives when I was like you know 12 or whatever a lot of times the things that turn me on I'm like oh god that's dumb like ugh like ew like you know like why do you fetishize like Zac Efron lookalikes that's so stupid but it's like you know you can't help how your sexuality was programmed by mass culture you can only recover from it definitely Um, but this one was great because I was turned on both politically and sexually and I was like wow and also the blurbs in the front of the book, it's just like Maggie Nelson being like smut and Eileen Miles being like deep. And then like, I can't remember who else, someone else being like hot, you know, and it's just like, and that's it. Like, it, and on the back of the book, it says like, difficult to quote in a family newspaper, the New York Times. And I was just like, stop, this is so good. That so anyway, sounds incredible. It's a really um, interesting book. I can't wait to finish it. I'm taking it real slow for my own pleasure, and I hope everyone goes and buys it. Okay, tell us the title again and the author. It's called Paul Takes the Form of a Mortal Girl, and it's by Andrea Lawler. Thank you so much, Jacob. Jacob is the author of Sissy, A Coming of Gender Story. Thanks, Jacob. Thanks. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Sheree Moraga, author of Native Country of the Heart. Yeah, I mean, I guess also in that way, it's kind of the way that that fuerza or like, as you're saying, like that that spirit carries on into different contexts, right? The no te dejes yes. that your mom spoke was the one that she needed in her time. And then she passed it on to you and, and it became a no te dejes for, for your experience. Um, exactly. And then you're also yeah. doing that, obviously, with your students, right? So there's this right. kind of yeah. way in which I, I love that you're right um, in that it's like, that's not what they intended, right? But right. Um, yeah, th- yeah. this is how we've understood that kind of resistance or being able to pull yourself back together. So I also wanted to ask you, I was waiting for the kind of chapter in which we would talk about the birth of this bridge called My Back. And it, it kind of moves through relatively quickly. And one of the things that I loved is your description of this kind of amazing moment in New York uh, where you were part of this, like, I mean, the the names we all know, right? Audre Lorde, Barbara Smith, those kind of people. And that you're saying this is both wonderful, it was incredible, but also a moment of alienation where you felt that you needed to, uh, the word I think you use, or the phrase you use, I think, is um, I, I had to return to California to kind of be a Chicana. Um, right. So can you talk a little bit about what you learned as an activist, as a woman of color feminist, as a lesbian, from fellow feminists like Audre Lorde or Barbara Smith? 
and then what kind of work you felt you still needed to do for yourself as a specifically Chicana lesbian feminist? Well, I mean, I think that they, you know, like even with Bridge, you know, it's like in the Kambahi River Collective, I think that Mm -hmm. that statement about, you know, I mean, that sort of pre preceded, you know, what people call now in academia intersectionality. But it's like they were, these women, I mean, they were just (laughs) like, you know, the smartest, the bravest, you know, the best writers. I mean, you know, I just feel like how I happened to land in that company, you know, was to me uh, an incredible, incredible blessing. I don't know how I got so damn lucky. And it wasn't that it was easy, <laughs> but it was It was like, and I'm, a, you know, I do have to say that I had skills, you know, like I'm a, I'm a good organizer. <laughs> so <laughs> that for a kitchen table press, it was like they needed me, you know. It's right. like it's also, you know, I'm a really hard worker. If there's anything, you know, I learned to be a very hard worker. And so they needed me and that, and it, there was a point it was all black women and me, and I said, look at you guys, I'm good. You know, if you guys don't, I'm good. If you want it to be a black women's press, that's cool with me. Mm. That's, you know, it's fine. And they said, oh, no, 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 <laughs> we want you, you know. And then at that time, then we brought in, you know, other Latinas and, you know, you know, a Native sister, an Asian American sister, and, you know, it was like trying to kind of fulfill that mission of being women of color, yeah. you know, not just specifically black women. But they were. But the point of it is, is that the, the specificity of their feminism was blackness, and 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 their own cultural and collective history, their own relationship to slavery, their you know their own relationship to the to the African diaspora, all of those kinds of questions. And it and it was. It's just like in the in the shape of it. I mean, and I knew. Um, and, and most of those women were, were first-generation educated women, right? I mean, Audrey, you yeah. know, is like, you know, um, a, 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 an immigrant, you know, from the Caribbean. And the others, you know, like most of them were, were black American, you know, U.S. women. But they, their own, and so they were first-generation college educated. And so there's many ways in which I totally related to their experience around class, mm. you know. And I learned a huge amount about racism because of all also what it was to walk with them in the world you know which myself as a mixed blood and 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 light-skinned woman i certainly did not know in a visceral experience but all of that time including you know meeting other meeting puerto ricans and you know dominicans and having those kinds of friendships all of that was like it was the lesson was is that if i was worth you know anything in this world I couldn't not go home. I mean, because it was, they, they offered the framework and then I had to go home and apply it to the specificity of what it meant to Mm. be Chicana. And so as, you know, so what does it mean to be a Mexican in the United States and all, and, and also what Mexican means too, is that you had mentioned it. So my journey, the journey or one's journey then when you, the specificity of being a Mexican American, being a Chicana, however you're defining that, also has to take you eventually to questions also about your own DNA, about your relationship to that land that your people have been in, some of your people have been in from the beginning of time. Right, so right. what relationship that has to your indigenous identity. None of those things would I have thought had I stayed in New York. It was only going home, you know. And I went home right when Loving the Warriors came out, and it was... Um, you know, a couple of years it was came out in eighty three, and I went home in eighty five, and it was it was really challenging. And 
the the line that you mentioned, the other part of it, I had to go home to be Chicana, and I was not so well-versed at it, is what the line is. I was not so well-versed at it. Because it wasn't about, I'm going home to be a Mexican-American. I went home to be Chicana, you know, which is a politic, which is, you know, requires certain things of you. So they were just wonderful teachers, you know, that I felt then then offered me the kinds of skills about how then, how to apply them to the Chicana experience and ways in which it was different, you know, what immigration has to do with it, what not speaking English has to do with it, you know, bilinguality, I mean, right. what are the, you know, and, and, and how we shape family, how we shape, uh, you know, class issues, all of that. It's so specific, you know, so yeah. that, and I think that's just true for any of us. I mean, that, that however we decide our politics, it really has to be quite, uh, we have to be able to stand in it with who we are. You know? Yeah, and and I guess also so. in that way, you're navigating always the particular and then the universal, this kind of like a larger movement, but then also your particular experience within it and the kind of communities well, yes. and places. Absolutely, because the thing is, and then I see this with young people, is that without that specificity, then they go out in the world and they have no ground to stand on. Mm, you know, they mm. get swept, you know, because you're, they, because you're, you know, I mean, I say this even, you know, with to white students, you know, I say, you guys got to, you know, it's not just people who got to go home. I said, you all have to do that too. <laughs> yes, you know, is. you can't just be allies in the world. What is your, what is your problem? What are your people's problems? You know, what are you, mm-hmm. so like, and, and so there's a way in which those become actually the strongest the strongest people for you to work with politically, people that actually really know their origins, know, you know, understand who they are and where they stand in the world, are the people you can rely on politically, not people that have all the right language, you know, but yeah. really about grounded action, you know. So I, I, it, it has, you know, in my now increasingly long life, <laughs> it has proved itself, you know, so, I think, you know, in my experience. Um, one, as we wrap up here, one of the most painful parts of the memoir is uh, the kind of long struggle that you describe um, both you and members of your family facing as you see your mother kind of succumb to dementia and Alzheimer's towards mm-hmm. the end of her life. I mean, those are the parts of the book where I also, st- I mean, it's a, it's an experience. I have not yet lost a parent, but the idea of losing a woman who is still physically there is profoundly moving to read about. Um, and you kind of go through it in terms of the, the day-to-day, you know, kind of asking, wait, is she taking the right pills? Kind of checking in with family members and others to try to get a sense of what the story is. And then that kind of oscillation between facing what's going on and then not wanting to face what's going on. Can you talk about that experience? Well, I mean, it, that... I mean, that's the whole end of the book, right? I mean, yeah. much of it is, is about that. And it, uh, um, or I guess what, what oh, you learned from it. Maybe but, that's because it's, it's too well, big of I a think, question. Well, I think the thing is, is that, you know, particularly when, you know, my sister was always a person, you know, she lives closest to my mom. She was always there first. So partly I also had to go through really accepting her perception right? Mm-hmm. Because I didn't want to hear it either. You know, <laughs> it was like, I didn't want, oh no, she's good. She's not really losing, you know, and very, very quickly it became evident that my mom was, was losing her memory. And, right. and so, so partly the, 
in the process, you know, I think that what's learned in that process for me was that, and I, and I do talk about this quite a bit in the book, is the way in which I, I could witness her body remembering even when she had no language, mm. you know, for it. And also this way, in, I mean, it's a profoundly, you know, uh, I, I think the only people that really write about this well really are, are people that, you know, like people that, that really do practice a certain kind of Buddhism, you know, and I don't, I don't consider myself a Buddhist, but there is something about what you're doing is you're observing the letting go of personality, Yeah. you know, and we have so much investment in our egos, you know, who we are and who we are in the world, you know, and for to watch the person that you value the most in life, really, I mean, you know, her, her you feel her spirit, you know, but everything she attaches to what shapes her, you know, which is her history, you know, and the, and the short term goes first, but when the long term goes, that's when they're gone, you know, and it's, and, and it's, um, that, that awareness is like, you'd have to be absolutely, you know, um, closed to not realize that the, the gift that they're giving you is for you to reflect on your own impermanence, yeah. you know, to live a life where you understand that this too, you're, you know, and I'm, I'm like, I'm very strong about memory, and and I, 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 I try to talk to young people about that their cultural memory really matters, that that's going to make them strong in this world, you know, and ultimately, you know, you know, when you know, it's like I, I witnessed somebody who had who let go of all of that. Now, it also brings up questions of spirit, you know. Mm. I can say that. I have experienced my mother spiritually after her death. Now, what that means or how that is, or, they, you know, it's like, I'm just like, you know, I can't say, I know nothing except that right. I know, I know this experience. So, so those are profound, you know, human questions. They're just human. Yeah. You know, and I think that, that and that's why I refer to her as that, Ironically, she's teaching me all the way through the end, you know, just in time for me to get there, you know, it's like, and, and uh, so that to me is, uh, is, a, is a beautiful thing, you know, uh, uh, you know, and I'm, and I'm not trying to, to make it in any way romantic or, or to, to no, say that it's not, not incredibly painful. Yeah. It's incredibly painful to witness that, you know, and there is no... You know, I mean, luckily, you know, I have a, a relationship with my sister that we were like in it together. So there was, a, there was a. I think it would have been really, really hard not not to have had her and she not to have me because it. You know, we had very different systems of sort of how to deal with it, mm-hmm. and together we were a good team. You know, but it also you had someone to mourn with too. You know. And, and and laugh when it would be ridiculous. You know, right, sure. Because like, really funny stuff happens, you know? It's <laughs> like you're going, damn, this is like, whoa. Because it, so, it can be so irreverent. They can be irreverent. They can be scandalous. They can be, you right. know, and they can also be truth-sayers. Yes. You know, like you, you've waited 50 years to hear your mother say this one line, and she says it, you know? And, and that's go, a wow, gift that you, you know? always will have, that kind of yeah. moments. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, and the the very last question that I have for you is also actually a question about history and Mm -hmm. history keeping. So you have experienced an incredible amount of things across your history in various movements, 
from, let's say, like 1960s, 1970s feminism, the 80s. Like, I mean, you've seen a huge amount of cultural shifting. Mm-hmm. How do you process where we are in the present? Like, it, and I guess that's that's an impossible question. So let me take it back. Um, so, um, but kind of, wh- how do you see the kind of contemporary state of queer politics, Chicana politics, feminist politics? Like, do you see it as progression? Do you see it as oscillation? Or do you see it as like we've moved away from these ideals that we used to have? You know, it's so uh, it's really hard for me to answer that. When you were beginning to ask the question on the other end of the phone here, I'm shaking my head, right? And and I think that probably says a lot, yeah. you know. I have a lot of I'm I have a lot of worries, you know. I feel like I mean definitely, you know, you know, because of Trump, so all these things have emerged, but also I feel like the also some all this hate mongering that's gone on is also actually happening within our progressive movements. Mm. You know, that I see a lot of this way in which language seems to supersede action that people feel like they have words for things and that somehow those words then mean they are superior because they have access to certain languages. And mm. and, yet, and yet if you don't have the right language, then you're canceled out or you know, you're called out. And sort of the role of the very progressive role of social media and then the very damaging role of social media, the quick fixes, the, the sound bites, you know. There's a lot of, you know, I think having come up from a time in which things, you didn't have access to all that information and also all of the distorted information. Right. And that education was less corporate, you know, corporately motivated, that actually, you know, you would be, you could be applying practice to your education. And, you know, I just have a lot of worries. And I have you know, at the same time, I wor- I'm working with young people all the time. And so, you know, I also feel like there is also a great <sighs> hunger in them. They're also beginning to feel their own. I mean, this whole thing about global warming and the environment, they know it They every yeah. day. It's like, it's actually, I think that some of the the anger they feel and the hostility that they're exhibiting to has an anxiousness. It's a kind of collective anxiousness that they may not even know why yet. Well, because they're, they're watching but, in the ways that you said before, kind of almost in a Buddhist way, they're watching the world that they know go away. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, you know, so you're asking me this question, and I can say on this day, whatever day it is today, I forget, but <laughs> it's it's like... Like, you know, so here we are at the end of April, and Easter was a couple of days ago, whatever that means to people, and Passover, whatever that means to people, or, or spirit, their spiritual understandings of the world, you know. Mm-hmm. All of this comes into question when you, when you really realize that, that we have reason to believe that the powers of be will really let this planet go. Yeah. You know, yeah. so there is a, there is a, you know, and I think, well, how many, you know, just for myself and my generation, how many years do we have left? I find I'm teaching now, like I'm teaching a poetry class to 200 kids, and I'm saying, hey, y'all, you know, it's like, what do you think that if I have 25 years left, think about it, you have 25 years left in your life, and that's a, that's a good scenario. That's like a, that's longevity for me. I have 25 <laughs> years left, 
how, what would you be doing right now? And they're all like, damn, you know, she's talking about like this. Or this is in the poetry class, right? Yeah. 200 kids. And they're looking. And, of course, what I talk like that because I want them to look at their own lives. Yeah. You know? It's like I just want them to realize how urgent it is because the only thing that matters is that, you know, really and truly, is that somehow that there is a, a change of a kind of collective consciousness that might shift everything around. And, you know, that old idea of the hundredth monkey, you know. It's a, it, and, and, um, but, you know, do, do I, am I confident? No. You know? So, you know, you just do, and you, and I think, too, the question, too, for young people is for them to find their work, how they understand what their work is in the world, you know, and not everybody has to do the same thing, you know, and yeah. you're, you know, to just find a place, just one little place. I always tell them, it's like, just find one thing that you can devote yourself to that you feel like is just, at least does not cause harm. Yes. At least does not cause harm. And creates you know, a world that you that. want to live in. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So, All you right. know. Well, we will end anyway, it there on that, that small note. <laughs> note of hope. I'm going to grab that small <laughs> bit of hope from the alligator's okay. jaws. Yeah, We've been good. speaking with Cherie Moraga, author of Native Country of the Heart. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I, I like speaking with you as well. Thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 